Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardner. It's Thursday, August 10th, and this week we have a special obesity-themed episode for you. And we'll start with Wagovi. It worked. The results of a massively important clinical trial of Novo Nordic's obesity drug promised to change the practice of medicine and shift billions of dollars in the process. Our colleague Elaine Chen joins us to explain what we know and don't know about the blockbuster study. And will the demand for those obesity medicines create the first trillion-dollar drug company? Mizuho Securities biotech strategist Jared Holtz joins us to discuss. All that after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Shirley Leung. I'm a columnist for the Boston Globe. I want to tell you about a new podcast that I'm hosting. It's called Say More. On Say More, I'll be talking to the doers and thinkers behind the biggest ideas of our time. How business works, how cities thrive, politics, technology, culture. I want to bring you inside those conversations. Say More, a new podcast from Boston Globe Opinion. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The long-awaited results of a landmark Wagovi study finally came through this week, and the news is that Novo Nordisk's blockbuster weight loss drug significantly reduced the risk of major heart problems for patients diagnosed with obesity, a victory that could impact medical care for millions of people. And while the potential implications are vast, the data are pretty scant, and experts have far more questions than they do answers at this point. Joining us to talk through the knowns and the unknowns for this massive trial is Stats Cardiovascular Disease reporter Elaine Chen, who has been covering the Wagovi saga through all its twists and turns. Elaine, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So to catch people up, this is a study that enrolled more than 17,000 people diagnosed as overweight or obese, giving half of them Wagovi and half a placebo for about five years, and then tracking kind of their incidence of heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular death. What did we learn from the results? Yeah, so these were patients who are overweight or obese and have existing heart disease already, and they don't have diabetes. We learned that Wagovi cut the risk of major cardiovascular complications by 20%, which is a result that was better than uh, what was widely expected. And these cardiovascular complications, as you mentioned, is a combination of heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular deaths. Um, But that's really all we got. We don't know what the rates were for the individual components of heart attacks, strokes, and death. And we also don't have any data on what the average weight loss uh, for participants uh, was over the course of the trial. And we also don't know what the trajectory of the weight loss looked like. So whether um, weight loss was maintained over the five years of the trial or if weight started to rebound. And um, that was a question a lot of people had going into this trial because this is the longest trial that's been conducted so far about uh, for Wagovi. Um, But Novo will release more details at the American Heart Association conference in November this year. So we might learn more about these details then. So we already knew that Wagovi leads to weight loss of about 15% for people with obesity. But as you've written about, insurance companies have been resistant to paying for it based on those data alone. Will this latest trial change that? It might. And I think the drug makers are arguing it, arguing that, uh, it will. Um, a lot of payers and employers have cited the lack of long-term data um, as reasons for not covering Wagovi, and 
OBC treatments at large. So this might sway some payers. But I think that a lot of payers and employers are still on the fence, just given how expensive the medications are. It's uh, you know over $1,000 per month. And we've already seen some large employers drop coverage because they've said that having to continue to pay for these drugs would um, have to lead them to raise premiums. So it's it's yet to be seen how much of an impact this will have on payers. Kind of on the same point, as we've been living through this explosion in demand for and debate about Wagovi for the past year, Novo Nordisk hasn't been able to consistently manufacture enough of the drug to actually like capitalize on its sudden celebrity. Is that going to be resolved anytime soon? Yeah, that's an ongoing problem that Novo is facing. It seems like it's going to still continue to be a problem. Um, they in the U.S. Um, they've limited starter doses of Wagovi and have. And they've also paused advertising. Um, And in the earnings call they had this morning, it seems like that's going to continue to be the case. They were a little vague about, um, you know, the status of the starter doses, but they kind of said that, you know, they're going to be expecting to be limiting starter doses through September. And then after that, they're still going to just be managing the demand and and, um, doses. And they weren't very um, explicit about what the supply plans were after that. Zooming out a little bit, there's been this kind of vexing medical question about the relationship between weight loss and cardiovascular health. You know, does does weight loss alone improve cardiovascular health or is there something in Wagovi or, you know, other medications that, you know, promote weight loss um, that actually could potentially reduce those, you know, heart problems uh, independently. What are experts saying about the relationship between those two elements? Yeah, I think um, it's a it's a really interesting question. So on its face, the Wagovi results seems to support this idea that if you lose weight, that'll improve your heart health. We, but in reality, we can't really determine a causal relationship just based on the information we have so far. Um, a lot of experts say it's likely that weight loss may be contributing to some of the cardiovascular benefit that we saw in the heart trial. Like we have data from um, patients who have gone through bariatric surgery or even significant lifestyle changes that have shown that over the long term, losing weight is linked to improved heart health. But uh, there. Are, are also a lot of thoughts that Wagovi is um, having some effects independent of weight loss that may be improving people's heart health. Um, you know, for example, there's some data in mice supporting that idea. And then there's there's also an earlier GLP-1 that had shown to significantly cut the risk of heart health, even though it didn't significantly affect body weight. So um, this is a relationship that I think is still very unclear. And a lot of researchers cautioned that we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that uh, if a drug causes people to lose weight, it'll definitely cause people to have better heart health, which is important when thinking about all these competitor drugs um, from Eli Lilly, from Pfizer, from all these different companies, since they're trying to argue that Select is going to benefit the whole class, but we really just don't know that yet. I think um, researchers are cautioning that we have to do cardiovascular outcomes trials for each of these other products to to really um, see if they also have cardiovascular benefits. Ellen, do you think getting to the or getting an answer to that question uh, is important for determining kind of how big this class of drugs can be vis-a-vis obesity? You know, we we sort of before we've been thinking about these drugs as 
uh, you know, first in diabetes and now uh, for weight loss. But but we we start thinking about these class of drugs as a, as a heart medicine, um, sort of like we think about statins. Uh, is, is, does that make a difference? And does that I mean, if if that if that's how people start thinking about these drugs and and treating patients, you know. With these medicines, as a as you know, sort of for cardiovascular benefit, does that just make the category that much bigger? Yeah, I, I think to some extent, I think that understanding this question of how Wagovi benefits heart health, and you know how much we can extrapolate that to other OBC drugs in general is important, especially for discussions of how willing payers would be to cover these drugs. Because I think the cardiovascular outcomes is something that payers have cited is is, is a really important um, factor in their decision-making around that. But I think in terms of um, patient and um, provider demand, I think a lot of doctors and patients see benefits to weight loss drugs uh, that are that aren't just related to heart health, like losing weight helps um, so many aspects of their lives, like their quality of life, their joints not hurting as much. Other, you know, health factors that I think patients personally see as really important. So I think that um, even without the heart data and um, benefits, there's still a big demand um, from patients and providers for obesity drugs. So Elaine, this morning, you and I also wrote about um some moves that Novo is making outside of the kind of mechanism that's used with Wigovi. Uh, You know, Wigovi focuses on this hormone called GLP-1 or GLP-1. What is Novo's kind of approach to weight loss more broadly, you know, to other types of mechanisms and other, you know, ways of addressing weight loss? Yeah, so Novo announced this morning that they will be acquiring um, a small biotech called Inversago, which is developing um, an oral drug that targets the cannabinoid receptor CB1. And this is a completely different mechanism from the, you know, from Wagovi, from Ozempic, the existing drugs that are on the market. Um, this compound that Inversago has been developing blocks CB1 receptors. So, th- and this is a approach that's interesting since um, it's been tried before and it's um, had some concerning side effects in the past um, due to concerns about uh, this approach uh, increasing the risk of suicidal ideations. Um, the developers, including Inversago, that are pursuing this approach now say that um, their approaches are different because they are not as much um, targeting receptors that are in the brain, but more so in peripheral tissues since there are CB1 receptors in various parts of the body, like the liver, intestines, and the pancreas. Um, So the hope is that uh, putting more focus on those receptors in the peripheral tissue would uh, decrease the safety risks and potentially still address uh, the metabolic benefits. And um, it's interesting because Novo isn't the only one kind of looking at approaches outside of GLP-1. Um, previously, Eli Lilly said that it's going to acquire Versanis, which is another biotech that's developing a monoclonal antibody that aims to cut fat while preserving muscle mass. Um, and so these big pharma companies, Novo and Lilly, that have been really aggressively pursuing the GLP-1 approaches are now both looking outside of GLP-1 and looking at other mechanisms um, to probably try to stand out. 
I was trying to think of a forward-looking question to frame that American Heart Association presentation, Elaine, that you mentioned in November, and it's kind of hard to overstate just how important that is because just zooming out on, on what we've been talking about this whole time is the result of a press release that contained exactly one numeral, which is that 20% reduction that you described. And, you know, this is something that conceivably affects the lives of upwards of 100 million people in the United States alone who fit the criteria for obesity. And we've spoken to all these cardiologists who have been so thoughtful about this and really like interrogate all these things, but we're really dancing around a single numeral. And so um, expecting greater detail in November and and possibly even, you know, exquisite detail on this trial like it's hard to overstate just how important that presentation and i think we assume uh publication in a peer-reviewed journal of these data will be because they've already moved billions of dollars in market cap just from that press release hitting and sparked this national and global conversation about what these drugs mean um and this really is just the beginning of what will be a deeper and much longer conversation yeah, that um, presentation at AHA will be extremely important. There's already a lot of anticipation about it. There were numerous questions in the earnings call this morning from analysts asking about anything they could share about what they're going to present at AHA. And of course, Novo didn't divulge any more details. But um, that's going to be of immense interest. We're hopefully going to get more information on, you know, how the rates were for the specific strokes, heart attacks, and deaths, and potentially more information that might be able to shed light on this question that we've been talking about, about what exactly is driving the cardiovascular benefit. Is it weight loss? Is it uh, glycemic control? Is it anything else? And hopefully that data could um, shed more light on that. Well, Elaine, we're glad to have you here with us uh, to keep track of, of all of this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, let's shift this discussion to Eli Lilly, which in many ways seems to be benefiting more from the Wagovi news than Novo Nordisk. Uh, Lilly's stock price ripped higher this week, propelling the drug maker's market value to an otherworldly $500 billion. And that, of course, is because Lilly has a GLP-1-related treatment of its own, and people have made the inference that these data benefit Lilly. But maybe more, or just zooming out a little, it has brought up the question, could Lilly become the first $1 trillion drug maker? And joining us now to discuss the Wall Street side of this whole obesity topic is Jared Holtz, a biotech strategist at Mizuho Securities. Jared, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. So, I mean, Jared, to get right into that first question, you know, can Lilly become a trillion dollar drug maker? What's what's your perspective? Why haven't we gotten to the point of having a trillion dollar, you know, pharmaceutical or biotech company yet? Well, I think every time there has been momentum in the pharmaceutical space from a stock perspective, historically, we've always kind of run into a period in which we are forecasting some sort of degradation, whether it's marginal or very meaningful. And that kind of takes the air out of the ability for the stocks to continue to run or continue to gain market cap. And in this case, there's no overly apparent or evident asset degradation, either vis-a-vis generic entry um, or major pricing issues. I mean, that may enter the fray, but I think for the first time, we're looking at a stock 
that may have momentum for the next five to 10 years, which is uncharacteristic of this group. You know, I, I'm fascinated by this question, Jared. And so I, I just did some uh, some Googling of my own and, and I was trying to remember like when, you know, when the first public company reached that sort of mythical $1 trillion market value market. And that was Apple, probably no surprise to most people, back in 2018. And of course, driven by by iPhones, iPhone sales. Uh, and today there are four companies in this sort of mythical $1 trillion club. Uh, Apple, as I mentioned, Google, uh, or known as Alphabet. Uh, and then most recently, uh, NVIDIA, because of all the AI craze. Um, we haven't seen a, a drug maker, at least, get even close to that yet, Jared. So it sounds like you think that, I mean, this is, I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility for, for Lily to sort of to reach that mythical height. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's even in the conversation, I think, is is interesting. I mean, headed into 2020, Lilly had a market cap of roughly $125 billion. And so at that period of time, if we were to have brought up a trillion, it probably would have been viewed as unfathomable. Yet here we are, you know, three and a half years later, and this the market cap of the company has more than tripled. Um, close to quadrupled off of those levels, actually. And yes, I think it's possible. The only gating factor, and it's interesting you mentioned Apple, because I do think that the iPhone and the obesity market are comparable in the fact that we know the population of users is huge. The the one issue I think that Lilly may have in, in reaching a trillion is that at the end of the day, the government is the biggest uh, customer of drugs, we all know that. And so if the if the size of the obesity market and the size of Manjaro specific to Lilly becomes too large, I think we're all gonna hear a lot of rumblings around what are the payers gonna do? How are they gonna manage uh, reimbursing for all of these drugs if the class reaches what some sell side analysts and also buy side probably have as a 50 to $100 billion asset class just for these two drugs. So I think it's gonna be very interesting to see how it proceeds, but I go back and I'm you know, i looking at the Lilly chart over a five-year period and it's multiplied at such a fast rate that I think looking at a trillion is actually not that crazy. That's really interesting. Yeah, I wanted to dig into that specific comparison because I, I think, you know, as you mentioned, this runway ahead of Lilly is very much dependent on Mount Jaro, the, the obesity treatment and diabetes treatment that seems to be on such a trajectory, but also Denanumab, the Alzheimer's treatment. And, you know, using Apple as a comparator, I mean, like I personally, I don't know much about technology, frankly, but I do have an iPhone. I know that there are people who are smarter than me who would say, probably with data, maybe even, you know, ironclad data that, for example, the Samsung whatever is a better piece of technology for reason X, Y, and Z. But my entire life, tragically, is held up by the Apple Corporation. So when the phone I currently have needs to be replaced, there is no doubt that I will replace it with whatever the iPhone that I consider to be least egregiously priced when the time comes uh, is available. Pharmaceuticals, is it doesn't really work like that. I mean, the you know patient choice isn't as robust. And, and similarly, I don't know how much branding really matters. Like if I'm a patient um, diagnosed with obesity, and I, for example, now get Wegovy, and then Manjaro comes out, and the data are better, I probably don't have a brand loyalty to Wegovy. I don't really care. I want the better drug. And then likewise, if one of the other GLP 
plus treatments um, from Lilly or otherwise comes out in the future with better data than Mount Jaro, one would assume, um, you know, depending on insurance coverage and et cetera, that that drug would conceivably win out over Lilly. So I guess I wonder, I don't know, will the, are the dynamics of pharmaceuticals such that this kind of trillion dollar valuation and this kind of like sustained growth that we've seen with companies like Apple and NVIDIA, is it even possible? I think the answer to that is, is yes and no. I mean, I, I agree. I, I feel like the brand loyalty in the healthcare arena is far less than in consumer. I mean, I, w- I would venture to guess that most patients probably don't know the manufacturer of the drug that they're taking most of the time. Um, I think the exception here is that the um, the branding or the dynamic around how people are talking about Wegovi for Novo Nordisk and then Manjaro for Lilly is a little bit unprecedented. And it's really one of the first mainstream markets that I can think of outside of the pandemic, which really put Pfizer and Moderna on the map as far as like your average citizen would appreciate a healthcare company. So I think there's probably some aspect where the answer is yes, and then no, we just don't know how this field is going to evolve. It's kind of crept up fairly rapidly. I mean, very few people were talking about obesity in 2020, even in early 2021. So it's pretty much been 12 to 24 months, um, maybe a little bit you know, towards the shorter end of that time horizon where this has been a major factor um, or a major talking point. We don't know and this is the, always the problem in pharma and biotech is that we don't know what's around the corner from a competitive standpoint. But it does seem that Lilly is in pole position. The Manjaro data from a weight loss standpoint has been the best that we've seen. And Pfizer, Amgen and other small cap companies in biotech are all working to at some point, um, you know, have a horse in the race. But maybe this winds up being a market dominated by two companies, even with other entrants. And if that's the case, then a trillion dollars is probably within scope. Hey, Jared, sticking with this point about competition, does it surprise you that Novo and Lilly have such a significant lead on other pharmaceutical companies? Well, I think it's important to remember that these products are essentially reformulations of drugs for diabetes. And given that these are the two biggest companies in that space historically, or at least over the past five to 10 years, it's not that surprising. What I think is surprising is the speed at which this obesity market or the idea of this market has really come to fruition because there have been so many starts and stops along the way with this market over the past 10 to 20 years um, that there's been a lot of skepticism. But it seems like these drugs work really well. Side effect profiles are manageable. But yeah, I think when you look back and consider Novo and Lilly's place or standing in diabetes, it kind of makes sense. I want to kind of hone in a little bit further on like Novo and Lilly beyond just the weight loss drugs, because, you know, I mean, kind of going back to the comparison to Apple and Google, you know, they, these aren't like one product companies, though, you know, Apple is kind of synonymous with the iPhone, but like they are selling 
laptops. I'm right now. I'm using a you know a Mac. They're like what prestige what's, television series, yeah. Prestige television series, and then what kid this day doesn't have an iPad? <laughs> um, you know, this is they have like a portfolio of products. Is there anything on Lily's pipeline, you know, or in their portfolio that you think could help bump them up? You know, add to this market cap. Well, I think the Alzheimer's market is going to be the second biggest opportunity. And, you know, one of the major focal points for the stock over the next couple of years, if they can get that right, um, if this denanomab winds up being a blockbuster drug, which many think it could be, then we could see that really helping to spur a bigger move to the upside on top of obesity. So for me, I think the, the biggest two drivers, obviously Manjaro, and then secondarily, but also very importantly, is Denanumab within a new market, which is Alzheimer's, that's going to, at this point, looks like a, a very similar dynamic competitively with primarily two companies that are going to be building that market. And it seems like the physician base believes that Lilly's drug and Biogen's drug are pretty similar. And Lily's drug is only taken once a month versus Biogen and Esize, which is twice a month. So if you go just based on logistics and patient preference and what might be you know, a real world setting dynamic, which is it's easier to go to an infusion center one time a month versus twice, Denanumab could be a much bigger drug than we think. It's obviously gonna take a lot of handholding and logistical things to kind of sort out over the next year. But this drug will launch into next year, and that could be the next leg of the story. I think it's in the stock to some degree, obviously, but that could be the, the second biggest driver, which moves the market cap closer to a trillion. That's interesting. And, you know, kind of likening Lilly to somewhat more like tech companies is they do seem to have, more so than many other drug companies, a focus on product development on a scale where they risk cannibalizing the sales of their successful products in the name of developing what might be the next one. And, and by which I mean, you brought up Alzheimer's. There is a drug whose name I don't know how to pronounce, so I won't uh, try, but is a subcutaneous version, basically, of denanumab, of an anti-amyloid um, antibody that Lilly is pressing forward with, uh, as quick, it seems like, as quickly as they can, such that it could conceivably, if it succeeds in, in clinical trials, um, be available on the market before Denanimab's patents run out, and Lily would just conceivably have a better product. And likewise, with Mount Jaro, we saw the data, um, I guess a few months ago at the, the big diabetes conference of what people call their triple G medicine, which is a combination of, of yet more metabolic targets that appears to be, like it could be, um, superior to Mount Jaro in time. And similar situation there, would Lily be um, disrupting its own very successful product in the name of another one that conceivably could be more successful. Yeah. So that's, you know, very similar to how Apple's company has evolved over time. They keep on generating newer, better devices that the customer base um, continues to get really excited about. And that's been one of the most impressive stories and one of the most impressive stocks over time. Lily's doing the same thing. I mean, I, if the subcutaneous version of the Alzheimer's treatments wind up working and they prove to be safe, that's really the holy grail in Alzheimer's. Because at that point, it becomes much easier to take the drug. There's no longer this logistical fight of getting to an infusion center, sitting there, 
for an hour, two hours, whatever, that really will open up the market in a, in a significant way. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops. Manjaro, they're going to continue to innovate around, you know, one of the main issues or, or setbacks with the obesity drugs continues to be the fact that you wind up losing muscle mass um, in addition to fat. And therefore, is it, you know, is that a concern? Is that a health concern longer term? So they're working on, you know, different um, mechanisms, which will preserve muscle mass. At the same time, you'll continue to lose fat at a, at a very high rate. So, you know, that's in the pipeline. That could be a story we hear more about into next year in 2025. So Lily's doing all the right things. The other thing I would say about the company in general is that they continue to be very acquisitive from um, an offensive standpoint or a, from a position of strength, unlike a lot of the pharma peers that seem to wait too long and then engage in M&A, but the street feels like it's defensive and not enough or too late. Lily's been very aggressive and very smart in terms of building out their portfolio when you know, they didn't necessarily have to. So I think that's the other thing we need to consider and why they've been so successful. So zooming out again, Jared, just kind of looking at a broader Wall Street view, you know, one of the things we always talk about in healthcare is, you know, kind of the difference between a, a, a general investor interest in, in something versus kind of a specialist invest, a specialist investor, particularly in healthcare, obviously, biotech, you tend to have a lot of specialized investment, uh, you know, funds that specialize in biotech. Um, is obesity one of those things you think that we're like, really is kind of uh, something that's going to kind of pique the interest of the general investor. Uh, and, I, and I wonder, like, as a corollary, to, a corollary to that question, like, where does obesity stand today sort of in the hype cycle versus AI, which obviously everyone is talking about AI these days? Okay. Um, it's, sim <laughs> it, it's similar to AI. This AI craze, I haven't seen anything like it in a while. So I, I still think it's kind of um, ahead of obesity because tech is just a much more well-followed um, sector within the market than healthcare, but it's close. I think obesity is maybe the closest thing that, that healthcare has. And yeah, I totally agree. I remember putting out a piece in 2021 where I was kind of contemplating why biotech continued to trade so poorly, both on a near-term and longer-term basis. And I just kept on coming back to the fact that when we talk about these biotechnology stocks and, and the product cycles or product lines, we're typically talking about very niche and esoteric markets. So we can come up with the best idea or the best drug, but if it's not serving a major market, it's very unlikely that anyone outside of a healthcare dedicated investment group is going to pay a lot of attention to it. And the two markets that I cited at the time were obesity and Alzheimer's because the patient populations were so obviously large that if anyone could get this right, generalists would have to care. And so I think that's what we're starting to see happen. Um, Lily Novo, obviously, maybe at some point Viagen, although they have other issues they're working through, but I think that's totally the case. I think the, the vast majority of biotech is far too niche, and we're finally here at the precipice of massive markets that are undeniable. So you basically <laughs> predicted it all, <laughs> Jared. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to, you know, to kind of talk through where Eli Lilly stands in this. And 
I, I'm really intrigued to see what happens with the, the company's market cap, as I'm sure you are. Yeah, Jared, we'll have you back when Lily hits one trillion. <laughs> we'll celebrate. Sounds great. Um, I look forward to that. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you missed the days when all we talked about was Biogen. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.